0: Still my soul. Hey, everybody. This is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every
1: change faithful will Looks like we've come on nine o'clock. Good morning and welcome all. We're in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and we'll be taking up again in uh, the start of chapter three. Um, so if you haven't been here before I, I will do just a short review we don't have a whole lot of time we got 35 minutes to cover probably close to two chapters today so as we look at Ezra Nehemiah we're going to have five movements that we'll look through right now we're in that first movement where the exiles have been by Cyrus's Edict, they've been released, and they're they've gone back to Judah and Jerusalem, and as we left it, they were just had built the altar, and they were once again starting their their fellowship there. We'll move into the next things as we progress through the uh, thing. Just one thing, and this is just sort of a uh, Free bit of information. Some of the, the Bible scholars have looked at these documents so long and so many times that they found some interesting uh, elements in the literature of that. And one of them came up with this symmetry that we have where we have both of those, the top and the bottom one, A and A, would be the Edict of Cyrus. And then in 6, 1, 1 through 12, we've got the Edict of of Cyrus in Aramaic. And so what he's got is there's parallel references that rotate around this center portion there, which is marked in X, which was the opposition to the building, which actually is, is in Artaxerxes' time. But what you've got is the symmetry that builds there, and it's also the point at which the text switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. So you've got the first four Um, sort of elements of of revelation that come through in Hebrew. Then you've got this uh, center portion, and then it switches to Aramaic, and you've got sort of parallel texts that happen there. There's a a much more elaborate one that, that happens in Nehemiah, but this is just sort of one of the things that the Bible authors have done is they've put within the document some interesting literary elements. So as we looked before, we were looking at the return and the rebuilding. And with that, those people that had knowledge of the scripture that were part of the exiles, they also began to anticipate something more than just rebuilding in, in that. As they, as they reviewed the all the prophets and all the prophetic uh, information that came from them, there was sort of this prophetic one of them. The commentators call it the prophetic package of hope, which included this new covenant language that we found in, in Jeremiah and the Torah written on the heart, a new heart in Ezekiel, all nations coming together and then the Messiah coming. So it's as you look at what's happening here, this is an exciting time for these people that have anticipated... Um, So anyway, let's go to the text once more. We're going to be in the third chapter. I'm going to start again with verse 1, and then we'll review that for for a minute. Now, in the seventh month, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua the son of Josadak and his brothers the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar to God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it was written in the law of Moses to man the man of God they set up the altar on its foundation for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening they celebrated the feast of the Booths as it was written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required and afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month began the, burnt, the offer to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission that came from Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, There's a lot going on in in that reference point there, but what we were looking at last week was as they began this work. One of the first things that they did was to build the altar. What was one of the motivations for that that we find in the text? What? they were terrified of the people of the land. So if you look at their circumstances, these 40-some thousand people, not all of them had come at this point in time, but these people had been come into the land, into the cities that were their forefathers' cities, and are literally displacing some of the people that are there, the people of the land. And so one of the first things they do, they're terrified of the people of the land, they seek God. They build the altar. They begin to go and establish these rhythms of worship, where they're going to have all the things that were specified, everything that they know that God wanted them to do in conjunction with temple worship, they're going to establish. They're going to establish the, uh, the, the festivals, all the holy days, the, everything that's there, the patterns of worship that, they, that God wants them to, to adhere to, they're trying to establish that. And essentially what happens is when the altar is operating, the temple is operating. Whether there's a building there or not, they are worshiping in accordance with what God has commanded them. So that's one of the first things they do is they establish the altar and then they establish these patterns of worship that basically help them to regain their identity as a people. Who are we? And and how are we going to relate with one another? But more importantly, how are we going to relate with God? How are we going to honor him in the manner in which he wants us to honor him? And so that's what they're establishing right off the bat, is we're going to now have a cultural identity, a spiritual identity, through this, these acts of worship. And then, so we're not just rebuilding a temple here we're rebuilding the people, that they are now going to be a nation once more. If you you consider that they were dispersed and they came back together, now they have to establish themselves once again as a nation. And so that's some of what's happening there. So in in verse 8 then, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers the priests and the Levites and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Hennadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple. Now, we've got a couple interesting things happening here is we've got now literally the temple is in operation, even though there's no building. We've got the worship happening, the offerings happening, those things that are going to be required for them to appropriately worship God, and they... Began the work and appointed, uh, in verse 8, Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And so you've got, I'm going to, sorry about that. Um, What was the typical age for those Levites to oversee the work of the temple of the Lord? Somebody knows this. Somebody's got to know this. They usually weren't going to be in that official capacity until they were 30 years old. What they're dealing with is just a limited number of Levites, those many of whom probably were younger and excited about traveling and going to the new territory. So they literally reduced the age from 30 to 20 and said anybody over 20 that's a Levite is going to be able to carry on the work of the operation of the temple, and then they they set up a different set of people in order to oversee the workmen of the temple. So they're adapting. They're doing what they have to do in order to have this temple function. Whether there's a building or not, now the temple is functioning because the worship is happening, and it's in accordance with what God's dictates were for them as they come before God with this altar. Now, when, in, chapter, in verse 10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with great joy when they praised God because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's household, the old men who'd seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound from the shout of joy and the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. You got this varied reaction. You got this younger contingent that they didn't know what the old temple looked like. They heard stories, I'm sure. They heard tales of the grandeur of this temple of Solomon and all that. And they're there. The work has begun. And they're so excited. Why do you think some of the older men would be weeping? <laughs> yeah. The, Solomon's temple was this in, incredible spectacle that took, many, many years to build. The temple that they're going to be working on now, once they're able to actually initiate the work, it's going to take them about five years to build. And we're going to see in that second edict of Cyrus, the one that's in Aramaic, that he actually gave them instructions for the size of the temple, how tall and, and, and the parameters of that. But those people who had been there and seen the reality of what the glory of that old temple was, and then they look at just this initial set of stones that would outline what is to come. They're just cut to the heart. And so you've got both sides, both of these expressions are being, being done. You've got this incredible expression of joy and song and trumpets and, 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 and glorious messages, and you've got those that are just wailing for that which was lost. We, had, we were so blessed, and God had given us such a, a wonderful nation, such a wonderful kingdom, such a wonderful temple, and it was all destroyed. And it's that reminder of the former glory that just cuts them to the heart. And so you've got this circumstance playing out You've got a lot of momentum now building up with these, especially those that are filled with joy. Okay, let's do it. We're going to make it now. And then we start chapter (laughs) 4. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached the rubble bowl and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, let us build with you for we like you seek your god and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of esarhaddon king of syria of assyria who brought us up from there but zerubbabel and jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers households of israel said to them you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our lord but we ourselves will together build the lord of build to the lord god of israel as king cyrus the king of persia has commanded us so we've got this allusion to and they're they're stated right here in that first thing as enemies of judah and there's an interesting discussion that happens with regard to these people so you've got their initial references in three in three to the people of the land, that they were terrified of the people of the land. And now you've got this other group, which is probably leadership of some sort that's coming to Zerubbabel. And, and they then would be those that are in a position of political power or influence or governmental control. And they're coming in and they're saying, let us help build with you. And so they have to make a decision. It doesn't look like they agonize over this decision much at all. You know, there's, a, there's an immediate response. But you have this sense that, and it's interesting because later we're going to have Haggai and Zechariah are going to be initiating the restart of the building. And if you read Zechariah, Zechariah, he actually says, he references these other nations are going to be coming and, and it's going to be incorporated. And so you have somewhat of a dilemma for leadership. When you are, and the, the dilemma is, how are you going to deal with your neighbors? You've got these people and, and, and God wants us To bring a message to the world. And he wants, he actually really wanted the nation of Israel to be this gleaming light that he would, that it would draw nations unto him. And so now you have this opportunity where these are people coming in and potential converts to true religion. Now, the problem with what they were doing was. As he referenced, they were these people that were brought into the land from, by the king of Assyria. And so if you, I, I referenced last week to this section in, in 2 Kings 17, where he's bringing in at least five different people groups from all over, dropping them in the area of Samaria, and they then are being attacked by lions they appeal to the, the uh, king of Assyria and say, what's going on? We don't know anything about the God of this land. We need to know something. And so the king of Assyria brings in a priest and he trains the people. But instead of them exclusively worshiping God, they just add the true Jehovah God to their other gods that they're worshiping. So these people that are approaching Zerubbabel, are the people of the land, they do have a certain knowledge of, of Yahweh. They know who this is. They have some training, but their, their religion is, not, is, is contaminated somewhat because of the other gods that they've been worshiping. And so as Zerubbabel is looking at you know, this particular time, And I think everybody, as they work in their lives, has to recognize, can I be effective if I'm working with these people? Because they're at a very fragile state right now. They're trying to establish their identity, their cultural identity, their spiritual identity, their national identity, and all of a sudden, there's this opportunity to, okay, potentially these people could be of benefit. Their motives could be good. I mean, they could have good motives, and we want to help you, and we want to worship God with you. So the leaders there, they have to make a decision. What's going to be the best interest of these people at this point? Can we afford to have this foreign influence come in with all their baggage all their idol worship their worship to false gods can we do that and still remain the people and 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 maintain the identity that we're trying to establish can we do that and welcome these people to work with us it's it's a challenge and it's a challenge for people today the manner in which we are going to deal with our neighbors and how we're going to, unfortunately, so many of the people that, that, that are living under what they consider to be the standard of Christianity are being so accommodating to the neighbors that they don't have a true identity as a true worshiper or God or follower of Christ because they've given up in order to accommodate and bring in these other people. So it's a challenge for leadership to know how are we going to relate with our neighbors? How are we going to be effective as a people without losing our identity and still be able to reach out to those that don't don't know us? In this particular case, I don't think there was a whole lot of debate. Zerubbabel recognizes we're at a very precarious position. We're just new in the land. If we set up alliances with these people, it could be tragic. The consequences could be tragic. So it's, it's th- that's the decisions it's made. Anytime you make those sorts of decisions, there's going to be an outflow. So if you look at chapter 4, then the people of the land discourage the people of Judah. Okay? We've offered help. The help's been refused. Now the people are responding there with discouragement and frightened them from the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel, all the days of Cyrus, of king, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Essentially what happens is the building ends up being halted because of the, the response of the people to the land. Chapter 4 becomes a little bit... Um, Hard for the Western mind to follow because what happens is we've got several jumps in the, cor- in, the, in, the, in the time frame of history here, to all the way to the point of Artaxerxes where we've got some references here, and this is one of the things that Old Testament offer, authors sometimes do: they depart from chronology. We've been telling this story in somewhat of a chronological basis, but now I'm going to collect some references that are close to one another. They sort of reinforce and refer to one another. And you're going to look at those. And then we'll get back to the chronology. And so that's what sort of happens here. Now, in the days of Harris, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, we're talking 65, 70, 60 years later at least, as were we're, this particular reverence, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabeel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to the king Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rahum, the commander and Shimsi the scribe, and the rest of the colleagues and the judges and the lesser governments, the officials, the secretaries, the men of eksh the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which the great and honorable of Snapper deported and settled in the land of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river these people are still identifying with their historical heritage. They've been in Samaria for 150 years probably because King Ashuaharis brought them there under the king of Assyria. And they still, as a nation, when when this is detailed, who these people were that are bringing these indictments, they still have a reference to what their their national background was. And so they have this, this sense of identity of what it was, and pretty much if you look at that list, that's pretty probably pretty much everybody in the region is, is basically signing off on this letter to try to stop the building. If, if you look at the, who they were and where, what they were, were talking about being settled. Now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us, to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls. This is obviously significantly forward in in history as far as the time frame that we're looking at, because... This is during the time of Nehemiah that they're actually building the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made of the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within the past days. Therefore, the city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt, the walls are finished. As a result, you will have no possession in the province of uh, beyond the river. So this territory which includes Judah, pretty much is the whole area beyond the river is what they're saying is not only are you going to have problems with Jerusalem and Judah, you're going to have problems with the whole area beyond the river. So they're really inflating the potential danger that they're alerting the king to. They're saying this could be catastrophic Then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace, and now the document which you, have sent, which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that this, that, that city has risen up against the king, In past days, the rebellion and the revolt have been perpetrated in it that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work That is, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued from me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter, Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? So we've got pretty much an effective halt to this this building, and this is during Artaxerxes' time, not necessarily during the time that we're talking about where they're trying to build the foundation of the temple, build upon the foundation of the temple. But you can see how this author has collected these other challenges, that were made to the building, okay? There was a challenge that was set forth by the people of the land initially. This is a challenge that was set forth by everybody pretty much beyond the river to Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes ruled for many years, and it wasn't until the seventh year of his rule that Ezra comes on the scene. So we know that, trying to think when Ezra came on the scene, but we know that uh, at least during the initial period, there's, there's an effort here to stop that before Ezra is sent in the seventh year of, of King Artaxerxes. Verse 23, Then as soon as a copy of Artaxerxes' comment was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. So now we're back with, we're trying to build this, this temple. And so in verse 24 of, of this is the last verse of, of chapter 4, then then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of King Darius. So, so you're basically we've jumped around in history quite a bit here, but we're back to um, it, it has told us when it actually initiated again, because it was stopped when they began, and probably the exiles were came back into the land in five thirty eight. In five thirty, they began to rebuild. So there's, it's been stopped for at least eight years, and then in 5, no, 520, I'll, I'll have to look that one up, but there's been a, six, a, a long time frame where they haven't been able to continue the work on the temple. Once they're able to initiate the work again, and that happened in 520 is when they were able to initiate the work again, so in the... In the Second year of Darius, they're able to start working again, and that's around 520. And so it takes them five years to complete it. That brings us down. BC is always challenging because you, you work backwards. So you're going from 520 to 515. That's when the, the temple was, was completed. So you got about five years there. Essentially from the from the start of the altar, from the start of the altar until they were able to initiate again, it's from 538 to 520. So she's very close. And so those those are the the, the, the circumstance of the people of the land. And so as you look at the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah, you're looking at a, a time frame where we come back, we have an initial establishment of the altar, we've got excitement, we've got enthusiasm, and we've got opposition. And so it's, it's I'm, I'm sure it's frustrating and challenging for those people to go on, but they're maintaining their worship, they're establishing their identity, they've taken a stand against their neighbor's influence, and, and, and perspective problems that are going to arise as a result of where they are. And so we're just going to start the, the first paragraph of chapter 5 because it introduces two other characters that we all know. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Je- Jeshua, the son of Z- Z- Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So literally, we've had a long suspension of time, and then God's prophets begin to inspire the people. And, and we're going to look at some references that we, that we have. Haggai is a fairly short thing, but it's pretty clear what he's saying is, it's time for you guys to start the work. Get this temple built. And then Zechariah is a longer thing, but there's other references in there that basically would spur the people in order to continue that which they have begun in order to complete this work, at least with regard to the temple. Now, once the temple is established, then we've got about 65 years from the, when the temple is complete till between chapter um, the end of chapter six and the start of chapter seven, when Ezra comes on the scene, we have a, a long time span. And so we've got basically, uh, I think in 458 is when um, temple's complete in 520. 458 is when the uh, when Ezra gets brings his wave of returnees to the land. So you've got quite a span of history that's taking place, and a huge jump as far as the narrative goes. That we're we're basically tracking along. We see these initial people. We see. Them begin the work. We see them have joy and excitement. We see them frustrated and halted. And then we see them inspired once again by the word of God through his prophets in order to complete the work that's done. It's not that the challenges are over, just they're going to move forward because God said to move forward. And so the people of the land are not happy about this circumstance playing out, but they're going to move forward. The Lord
0: is in His holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in north central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time. God bless. Keep silence before. Him.